This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is delighted to welcome Amy Hoff to the show. Amy's novel, My Heart's in the Highlands, is coming out from Bella Books this month. Welcome, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you have a fascinating biography, and we'll get to that in a bit, but let's start out with your book. This is sort of a, a double historical because there's an initial framing story in Victorian Scotland. And then there's a time machine, and our heroine is then in the 13th century falling for a fiery Highland chieftain. So how about I read the cover copy to bring our listeners up to speed? Because I love doing dramatic readings of cover copy, as you may know if you listen to my show. Okay. The year is 1888. Brilliant and beautiful, Lady Jane Crichton has fought the constraints of her Victorian Edinburgh upbringing to become one of the first women to attend university for medicine. Denied a degree because of her gender, she decides to marry a closeted gay man, providing him with political and social cover and herself with the time and money to pursue her scientific interests, one of which is a time machine. Jane's machine works, but not exactly as she expected, and soon she has crash-landed in the 13th century Scottish Highlands. There she is rescued by a wild, red-haired warrior woman, Ainsley MacDonald, next in line to the chiefship of the great clan Donald, the rulers of the Sea Kingdom of the Isles. Despite the constant threat of attacks from enemy clans, harsh winters, and a touch of homesickness, Jane finds herself bewitched by this land, this time, and this magnificent woman. The rough and warlike Ainsley also feels the magic and revels in a passion and love neither she nor Jane had ever imagined. But Jane is hiding a dangerous secret, one that threatens to tragically transform their Highland fairy tale. How's that? That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm never quite sure whether I'm being over the top. So what inspired you to mix up all the tropes this thoroughly? Um, actually, for that very reason, um, because they, because so it's because partially um, I, I've been a Scottish historian for a very long time and a folklorist. And um, I used to say, like, I know all of the tropes that, that work, but um, I, I wanted to do something different. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of um, straight Highland romances. There are a lot of gay ones as well, but like not very many lesbian ones. So um, I actually wrote this because um, a, a Scottish American, as in like one was Scottish and one was American, lesbian couple is getting married. And I wrote it for their for a wedding gift for them. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> They don't know this yet, actually. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, well, <the laughs> so it's okay. They're going to know soon enough. It's not, it's not the, like... The podcast won't be coming out until the month your book is released, which is why I, I phrased the, the introduction that way. So oh, no, it's okay. This, they'll, they'll find out soon, soon. So, like, it's okay. <laughs> like, um... But uh, but yeah, they 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 I had, like, mentioned it just off the cuff at some point, and... Um, the Scottish woman was like, yes, 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 please write this book. And I don't even think she remembered that she said that to me. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I did. So um, I guess also the other reason is that um, people tend to kind of couch um, a lot of Scottish history um, in 
I would call like, I don't know, like the Bonnie Prince Charlie era. Like it's always in that time period or a little bit earlier, but I wanted to, to talk more about um, the, the Sea Kingdom and the Isles and when um, Dalriada was, was its own nation um, mm -hmm. and that part of Scottish history. And also about the, this, the enlightenment of Scotland and then, you know, a lot of the, you know, scientific advancements that Scotland has made because those are parts of Scottish history that aren't usually um, dealt with in a lot of fiction or, you know, fact, honestly, like even nonfiction books focus a lot on what people popularly want to read, obviously. So I was trying to go for like, you know, time periods that aren't dealt with as often, I guess. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people overlook how much of the Industrial Revolution was driven by Scotland and Scottish people because they get subsumed into the whole, you know, British Empire thing. Yeah, exactly. And Scotland is um, incredibly inventive. Like it has a huge history of invention of, of so many different things or, you know, like contributing to the invention of so many different things. And that was um, partly why I made Jane an inventor, because I wanted to kind of make that clear that Scottish people have always been um, kind of ahead of, uh, of a lot of other places in, in their number of inventive people, I guess. And you, you mentioned briefly, and we were talking a little bit before I started the recording, about the entire genre of Highlander romance, um, yeah. which I, I know you have opinions on. But my perception is that it it isn't necessarily the Bonnie Prince Charlie era. It's more like this vague, timeless, misty, um, you know, Brigadoon Scotland rather yeah. than a specific era a lot of the times. Yeah, that's so, true. So feel free to rant a bit about that for a oh, while. Now. Okay. Well, what's interesting about that is that this has been um, an issue in the way that Scotland has been dealt with in um, popular culture for a very long time. Um, tartanry or tartanism is um, is kind of the fault of Sir Walter Scott, to be perfectly honest. It goes back quite a long way. It's a real issue when you romanticize a culture to the point of it almost like not existing in a way like um walter scott's kind of started this when king dorange came to uh, into edinburgh and he was like in full highland regalia even though like scottish people hadn't been dressed like that in a very long time and it was very um you know like for show basically um and the whole like of britain got this tartan craze where they were just so excited about this romanticized highlands thing while actual people living in the highlands were having to leave and starving and all this awful stuff and um it's it's kind of the brigadoonery thing has been an issue for scottish representation in the media for like over a hundred years and and you see this a lot like if you look at um things like edward said's orientalism and the othering of cultures and all this kind of stuff it, it it's it's really an interesting um thing to look at how how the way that this portrayal impacts the culture that um, that it's supposed to be celebrating, because it's kind of like um, a good example for me is that um, I lived in I've lived in Glasgow for for many many years, and one of the things that um, I had a bunch of visit Scotland people come to one of my folklore courses and say to me, we can't sell Glasgow, and it they can sell Edinburgh, the Highlands, and all this stuff, but they are having a really hard time, you know, selling the city, and part of that is because Glasgow does not fe feature. In um, in that romantic view of Scotland, whereas Edinburgh, you know, has a lot of the the buildings and all that sort of Gothic-looking architecture and and stuff, but it's very much like 
So then the tourist that arrives in Scotland is then given a very specific experience of what Scotland is, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so it all kind of comes back together in that way. And it's, it's, it can be very detrimental to the culture, the receiving culture, because it's like, it's like um, the actual real lived experiences of the Scots and of whoever, you know, in, in the romanticized culture are completely ignored because anything that breaks the fantasy you know, people don't want to know. So, you know, it's a problem. Yes. As, as one of my other friends who is a historian has put it, you know, the English practiced their cultural imperialism homegrown uh, since a long time back. It's not just going out to the rest of the world and doing the same, you know, processing of other people's cultures for home consumption. But I mean, all the way back to the way that the English appropriated the Arthurian mythos. It, it's exactly what you're saying is you go out and you cherry pick another culture that you are oppressing and then force them to perform your mythologized version of their own history. Yeah. And that's, I lived in Hawaii for a long time and that's true of, of those islands as well. Like exactly the same thing. And it's, it's something you see repeated again and again worldwide, basically with anything that's any place that's romanticized. Um, and, and the, like I said, the word is othering. Um, and, and what's like, there's just so many things that people are really, you know, they they really cling on to, you know, like the, the, you know, Scottish identity, if they're not actually from Scotland and, and this kind of stuff. And um, when confronted with some of the realities, like the fact that there is no such thing as Clan Tartan, that that's not a real thing. It's, it was yeah. invented. Um, is It's very hard for people to, to accept because, you know, they really the myth means something to them and that's why it's lasted i mean there is of course the invention of tradition which is you know the the theory that um because it has become now a tradition then it is a tradition and i get that too but like it's also not historically sound and 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 anything i've had a lot of discussions where people just really don't understand that like just because the popular cultural historical um representation is one way it doesn't make it accurate and like sometimes of course that's just a historian's complaint but sometimes it's actually down <laughs> yeah i still remember when so i have a number of historian friends and, and my my friend sharon crossa who did her um phd dissertation on women's history in scotland and when we sat down to do a a ranty watch of braveheart <laughs> oh my god you could have sold tickets to it uh you know it's like oh my god what are they doing here but so so you fell in love with scotland at some early point i imagine um I did. why don't you talk about that um i got into scottish history well it's kind of a weird thing because um I lived on the road in the States for a very long time. And my first interest was actually not Scotland. It was um, American highway legend because I was a drifter. Like I, like I lived on the road. I, I went, I lived in motels and I traveled the country back and forth and I picked up jobs and stuff. I did that for about 10 years. Um, and my interest at that time was um, how urban legends traveled basically um, in, in the States. And eventually that kind of became an interest in monsters and Scotland has a lot of monsters. <laughs> and so I, um, and I just got really into their, their specifically their monster history. So like, I'm actually like a monster folklorist. Um, I, I went to school for Scottish history, but my specialty is monster folklore. 
Um, and, and, it, and it's mostly about, yeah, basically how stories are told. And that's why I'm so interested in the idea of romanticizing and othering Scotland, because that's just another way of telling a story because it's, it's a myth, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's how I got into it. But I was, I just fell into it. It, it was, there was nothing specifically anything about it. Like there just was, there, there was, it just happened to be Scotland and I don't know why. Um, I, it just occurred to me like when I was because I, when you read a lot of um, monster mythology in the States, it, it kind of it traces back to many, many countries all over the world because, you know, America is a melting pot. There are people yeah. from everywhere in, in the States. So um, and that's how yeah, that's how I got into it. And it was just one of those things where um, the further I got into it, the bigger it became, like the more and more I learned and the more I got interested in it. So that's that's where that's where that interest came from. So you ended up living in Scotland for a while, and um, I, I'm trying to sort of fit together the timeline of your career because you were a movie maker at one point. Was that all tied together? Uh, no, I'm. A, I, that's what I do now. I'm a filmmaker. Oh, now. That's, okay. I, I write and make movies. That's that's pretty much my my life these days. I did a lot of things over my lifetime. Yes, uh, any of them that you want to share is is fine, but. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you ended up in the Canary Islands. I have been seeing your pictures on Facebook and it is gorgeous. It is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then of course, right now, as we're recording this and uh, for the listeners, we're recording this in the beginning of April. And so you've also been posting a lot about the uh, coronavirus um, lockdown yeah. there, mm -hmm. uh, which we can always keep our fingers crossed that this will all be, you know, past history by the time this airs. But, but talk about how you ended up in the Canary Islands and what you're doing there. Well, um, I am very sorry to say this, but as an immigrant, I was kind of one of the first um, casualties of Brexit. And um, that's a very long and complicated story. But, you know, just so you all know, Britain is not very friendly to immigrants and never really has been. And it's just been a real disaster since I very first lived there. I mean, I was I ran a business in Scotland. I went to school in Scotland. I taught school in Scotland. Um, I was there for many, many years, but it was just like, it just got, got, you know, like the, the visas kept disappearing and like the, the sort of rope got, got tighter and tighter and tighter until it was like insane. And like all of these, it, it's just a very long adventure, um, a pretty sad one and stuff. And what ended up happening was my, um, my partner who is Scottish and I um, ended up in the Canaries as, after Cannes, the film festival last year because we were thinking about trying Spain because like we didn't really know what else to do and I speak Spanish. Um, so I was like, okay, we'll do that then. And the cheapest flight out of, out of Nice after the Cannes Film Festival was to Tenerife, which is where I live now. And we arrived here, we were only gonna spend like four days and then we were gonna try to move to Valencia. But we um, ended up not being able to do that because we couldn't afford it yet. And so we ended up um, staying on the island for another month and it was just like incredible and we fell in love with the people and the place and everything else about it because it's kind of a combination of all of the places that I've loved in the past because um, I partly grew up in Mexico when I was young and um, I also lived in Mexico again in Tijuana for a while when I was an adult and this place is very much like um, Mexico in certain ways. And um, I also live in Hawaii and it is also like Hawaii. It's kind of a combination of both. Plus it's European and has, you know, extensive Spanish history and the history of the Wancha, the Aboriginal people is really fascinating. And it just really, every single thing 
that I have wanted out of life, I found it on this island. So, I mean, I'm very pro Tenerife, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you have a fascinating life history, I have to say. Do you see other novels coming out of your various experiences? I could easily see, you know, like a, a, a supernatural romance coming out of your, your road folklore. Um, well, interestingly enough, um, I wrote a little memoir called American Drifter, and that's about my actual experiences. But it was pretty, it's pretty brief, because honestly, um, people ask me, like, write this down. And I'm like, well, honestly, it's just driving around. And I was alone. So I'm not really like, <laughs> like, it wasn't much to like recount, really. But I just talked about, you know, practicalities and some experiences and how I got into folklore. And then I just started another series, which is like, um, it's called, it's a it's Route 66. And I think the first book is called The Mother Road. And it's a supernatural series about a woman that lives on, on the road as a drifter in the 90s, which is when I was doing it. So, mm -hmm. so, so it sounds like uh, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'm a pretty, I'm a very prolific writer. So I'm, I'm kind of write all the time, every day, mm -hmm. constantly, which is, both a blessing and a curse, honestly, because it's like the ideas come too fast to write them down. Um, but yeah, I, I, I try to write things based in my, on my experiences or some of the knowledge I have. I have another series out called Caledonia, which has a web series that I directed and I'm in as well, like as an actress. And I just finished my feature film, Burns Night, which is about the national poet of Scotland as a vampire. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think it's hilarious too, but not everyone does. A lot of people are very protective of uh, Robbie B and oh. they do not like that. <laughs> so, so that answers one of the other questions I had, which is what sorts of films do you make? It sounds like, again, it's uh, quite a smorgasbord. Um, monster movies primarily. Like I really, mm -hmm. I like, um, but I mean, when I say that, like I, I make horror, but mostly like fantasy horror, not like. Uh -huh. horror. I like to make things with monsters and like puppets and things. I'm much more dark crystal than I am something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a director. <laughs> well, thank goodness. Uh, I'm not into the whole Chainsaw Massacre type of genre. Yeah, it's it's um it's it's a tough thing for horror directors right now because there's there are so many different kinds of that and like my my thing is more like I really like stuff like Gremlins and Tremors and that sort of monster film and um and The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and anything like that. those aren't horror those are fantasy but um that that kind of idea just with like a lot of where it's more fun like it's more like a, a carnival ride I guess that's the that's the kind of horror I like that and um, stuff like the haunting, the old, um, the old black and white version. Like I really like that because I'm very much about suspense and thriller kind of stuff. And um, I'm really into those things. So I mostly, I mostly work in, in supernatural um, storylines, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'd like to circle back to your novel for a bit here because you do something that is, a repeating theme that I've seen in FF historical fiction, which is what I call the the cross time uh, story, where there there is some element of contrasting or moving through different eras. Now, sometimes mm -hmm. it's time travel, sometimes it's past lives, sometimes it is a modern character who is researching someone in the past. But you're doing an interesting version of it where the two time periods are both historic with respect to the reader. Mm -hmm. What? How do you feel this 
I mean, I'm trying to word this in a way that, that doesn't sound critical because I'm fascinated by this, but what does it add to your story that you are doing this contrasting or framing two times together? Well, uh, for me, I think part of it, like I had said before, was because I wanted, I really wanted to um, display this sort of Scottish Enlightenment, or, well, that's actually a little bit, 1888 is past Scottish Enlightenment, but the, um, you know, like the flowering of invention in Scotland and a very, a much more modern Scotland, even though it's, it's still like sort of the Victorian era, um, against the, uh, the sort of traditionally imagined Scotland of the past. And I wanted to do, and, and the thing I was going to say about this was I also wanted both characters to be Scottish because, you know, a lot of the time it's, it's like someone who is American or some other thing, you know what I mean? So it's, so I wanted uh -huh. to do both of those things because I really wanted to contrast um, two different times in Scottish history, but also make both of the characters Scottish, although technically Ainsley is not Scottish because the Dalriadan people didn't believe that they were Scottish. Um, uh -huh. They weren't really, not at that time anyway. Uh, but like, yeah, that's that's the reason that I chose to, to do it that way, especially because with the two different time periods, I can discuss the two different historical elements, I guess, like the things that were going on at the time and, and what was different. And, you know, and especially because in part of the book, Jane goes back, she goes during her time period, to Isla and to the um, the areas that she is in the, in in the history with Ainsley and sees that change and how different Isla is during her time compared to Ainsley's time and and just sort of a compare contrast about like how Scotland has changed over over the centuries. Uh huh. Yeah, I know that often the like especially the time travel. Um, like you know the 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 vastly popular Scottish time travel novel that we shall not name, um, where the 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 modern character is something of a reader insert. It is the way the reader is drawn into being able to view the historical era because the the character, the time traveling character, needs to learn about things, and thereby the reader learns about things without having without too much like info dumping from the story mm -hmm. itself does that does that make sense yeah that's true and, of a lot and, of um, modern stories i find yeah and but but here we don't quite have that because your, your lady jane is herself of an era that the reader will need to pick up and understand first so the things that she would be noticing in her own history her, you know, in the 13th century past may be different from what a contemporary person would notice. I, I'm, I'm just, there's no question here. I'm just fascinated by this as a storytelling framework. Well, I mean, I'm glad that you are. I hope other people will be too. <laughs> like, I mean, being fascinated is, is a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. It's just, I think it's because like, then sort of like the reader is the third person because they can then compare or contrast to what they themselves would be thinking in either yeah. one of those characters' situations, you know? Um, and like certain things that had to be done, like in Jane's time, because Jane marries a, a closeted gay politician, basically, like he's in, you know, he's in huge trouble because of that. And like that wouldn't happen, you know, like that wouldn't even be something that anyone would consider if it was a person from now, like they wouldn't think yeah. that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be something that they were going through. And so I just thought it was interesting to look at the social 
um, mores of, of that time period um, and compare them to what, yeah, like the, compare them to what those people in the 13th century would be doing. And often like the thing about history that I find fascinating or one of the many things obviously um, is that the, the further back you go, the less prejudiced people tend to be. It's really odd. <laughs> like, but people always think that the, the, the old past, like the, the very far past was like way worse than we have it today. But the thing about that that always bothered me was actually that's not true of every country in every situation. And if you tell people that all we have ever been is oppressed forever throughout all of history in every nation, then it's kind of like, I don't know, I always felt like it makes the struggle harder because it's like saying, you know, now we're fighting for something that like we've never had instead of trying to get something back that we had once. And like, I think, you know what I mean? And you'll look at, at various different cultures and they have very different responses to different things. Um, whether that's, you know, the position of women in society or the position of LGBTQ people. And I mean, even today there are different ways of treating trans people, for example, like in Thailand, they have an entire gender that's, you know, for that, like, which we don't even have in, in, um, in, in the West yet. Uh, so like, I'm just saying like every culture has a different um, way of treating this stuff now. So we can't expect that all of history is going to just be negative past. Yeah, that's, that's something that I hammer on a lot in my, my blog and in this podcast is we have, the, it's the myth of progress, the idea that we must be the, you know, we in the modern era must be the pinnacle of historic progress. Therefore, everything before us must have been awful and worse. And mm -hmm. especially for LGBTQ history, people look at just the 19th and 20th centuries and develop a whole theory of the social progress of, of LGBTQ acceptance and integration that is meaningless if you go back to earlier centuries. And as you say, you know, it's, it's, it's not always better, it's not always worse, it is always different. And there's yeah. a cyclicity in how things are viewed. And that that makes it interesting to research because, I mean, for your uh, 1888 setting, we have a lot of, you know, social history data on what it was like to be queer then, mm -hmm. both as men and as women. And, and as you say, in the United Kingdom, for men, it was, uh, it was illegal. Uh, mm -hmm. You could, in theory, get executed for being gay. For mm -hmm. women, the law... Gay women were invisible to the law, which made yeah. it an entirely different question. Mm -hmm. But you get back to the 13th century, and now the ability to research how would people have thought about this? What, what categories would they have had? What identities could they have imagined and embraced? And it gets a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. So uh, how did you go about that? Well, the thing about that far in the past, um, especially for this region, it's it's kind of difficult because uh, honestly, like a lot of stuff just wasn't written down. And um, the things that were though were are, are generally I kind of I based a lot of what I was looking at on Norse history because these people were basically Nordic. Like that's that's where they came from, and uh, they're the Gallic Nor Norse Gallic sea kingdom mm -hmm. is what it was so it's like a combination of two different groups um yeah. what we what's interesting we've got a lot of the norse stuff and the norse stuff does discuss a lot of this um and one of the you know, another strange thing male homosexuality is discussed 
female homosexuality is not mentioned. So it's kind of like, did they just not care? I don't know. Like, it's, did it not matter? It's hard to say, you know. So, so some of it, of course, is going to be like whatever, you know, you get, you glean from that. Like, does that mean that it didn't happen or did happen? I mean, obviously it happened, but like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, I, but just in the sense of like, why wasn't it written down? But it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. Why do yeah. you know why are certain things written and why are they other things not? And it's you know it doesn't even necessarily mean that it had any relationship to its importance because why you know like what people wrote doesn't actually tell you that either. And it's it's really interesting when you look at primary sources in that way and like what that meant. But what we do know about the Nor the Norse cultures is that they were often much more equal and had a very different way of going about things. They were very clean. The people really liked to bathe. They, you know, they, they liked to do their hair. Um, one of the big things that they would say in Britain when they had Viking invasions was that a lot of the women would go with them because they were, they were too tempting because they were so clean and they smelled good. <laughs> and they were like, we, we have to figure out why these women are leaving with these men who bathe. It's amazing or whatever. <laughs> like, so that's always fun to read, but like, um, but that's where I, I took that. And also just based on um, some of the primary sources that we do have, like um, the law of the innocence, which I always find really funny to read because it's just so arrogant. But, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's a really, it's another interesting thing. And this is, this is actually like a, a bigger sticking point for me than even LGBTQ history, because, it, because as you may have read, um, I was a street fighter growing up. I spent most of my life doing that. Like that is, that was my, my growing up, that is what I knew how to do. I mean, that's what I was before I was anything else. And I spent a whole lifetime believing that I was the only one, or at least the girls in me that I knew were the, like alone in the world in that way, because there's just a lot of suppression of that history for women. Um, <laughs> what's really interesting is that um, I actually contacted some fellow folklorists and historians about the law of the innocence because the way that it's described um, is really interesting, the, the description of it, I mean, not the thing itself, because um, yeah. within within the, the text, um, the guy talks about how his mother sees a woman and her baby, I guess, dead on a battlefield, and it makes his mom sad. So his mom says, can you forbid women from fighting? He does this, mm. it doesn't actually it doesn't do anything, nobody listens to him, but like, <laughs> and they keep fighting. But the thing is, so like, you you don't make a law against something that isn't happening and like what's really weird is in the lists of when you look it up it says like here is the law of the innocence that like so that like women will never fight because they never actually did and it's this really weirdly desperate like <laughs> it has ever happened and i'm like but i exist so if i exist i know that other women have done this before and it's not you know and there are women in the military and women in the police and like all these things and it's just so weird to me that people are so like I don't know. It's like it's like it, it it ruins their whole like society picture or something like that to imagine you know women who not only fight but want to and do it for purposes that aren't related to anything just because they like fighting. Because I was one of them, and I say was, but I am not. It's not a past tense thing. <laughs> I, I, I just haven't had any opportunities for a while. But but it's it's something both of those things like both LGBTQ history and the history of women in combat and women warriors and stuff is very suppressed. And I, I, I found that to be very um, frustrating because much like what we were just talking about, if you tell people who are LGBTQ that, you know, you've never had it so good, 
um, and then they believe that, that's worse than them knowing the truth, which is actually that there has been all sorts of different things going on in the past. Um, but it, and then, uh, likewise, if you just tell women and men, actually, and trans people, whoever, women are like the weaker sex and they always have been and they can't fight and they can't do anything. Well, that that it's like it's like it makes it doesn't make you weak. But you know what I mean? Like it, it gets you into yeah. a mindset of thinking always this way. This is why I have a I also I tend to have a um, I disagree with calling anything a women's self-defense class because you're pu you're putting women in the position of victim. Just call it martial arts, man. Like, that's what it is. <laughs> Women's kicking ass class, whatever. You know what I mean? But just the wording and the, the kind of, you know, the language that we use, it matters. Yeah. And, and because it matters, telling stories matter, whether it's telling folklore or writing novels or anything like that. Uh, this has been a fabulous discussion. I don't think I've had as much fun uh, in, in, in quite some time. I, I could go on forever about history and folklore, <laughs> but honestly, like... I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so if people wanted to follow you online in social media, where should they look? Um, okay, I have a Tumblr, and it's um, Angel on the Road, and I have a Facebook, which I think is just... Um, I think it's just Official Amy Hoff, and my website is also the same, officialamyhoff.com. Okay, I will put all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much, Amy, for joining the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.